This podcast was recorded on the ancestral lands on Treaty 1 territory, the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and the Dene peoples, and on the homeland of the Métis Nation. This is Humans on Rights, a podcast advocating for the education of human rights. Here's your host, Stuart Murray. My guest today is an expert, a curator of Holocaust and genocide content at the Canadian Museum for Human Rights. And I am delighted to welcome Dr. Jeremy Moran into our conversation today because we want to talk a little bit about the notion that International Day of Commemoration in Memory of the Victims of the Holocaust is January 27th. And my understanding, Jeremy, correct me, but 27 January marks the anniversary of the liberation of the Nazi Germany or Nazi German, I should say, concentration and extermination camp of Auschwitz-Birkenau by the Soviet troops. Is that accurate? Yeah. Yeah. So that's the date that was selected for International Holocaust Remembrance Day, January 27th, liberation of Auschwitz by the Soviets. So a very pivotal I didn't mark the end of the Second World War in Europe, but a very pivotal moment towards concluding the Holocaust and the uh, planned extermination of the Jewish people by Nazi Germany and their collaborators. Okay, great. Thanks for setting that up, Jeremy. I appreciate that. And we're going to obviously get into that conversation in this episode. But first, let's just back up a little bit. You have a PhD in cultural mediations from Carleton University. And your dissertation focused on the treatment of the Holocaust in Canadian cinema. So that's a bit of a a journey from a guy who I'm talking to today in Winnipeg. I know you're a Winnipegger because I know a little bit about your full disclosure. We uh, had a chance to spend a bit of time together at the Canadian Museum for Human Rights. Any success I had there was because of people like you. So thank you for that, Jeremy. Let's talk a little bit about you. So you're a Winnipegger. Where did you get your education and primarily lead us into your education and how you got interested in studying the Holocaust? Yeah, for sure. So yeah, born and raised Winnipegger. I went to the Mennonite private school education for my elementary and high school. But my mother, my mother's family is Jewish. So I grew up with a lot of influence from that Jewish side of my family. We didn't have any direct relatives who lived through the Holocaust in the family. But it was something that was sort of on the radar, of course, as we participated in family gatherings and the high holiday uh, dinners. We were always included our family, even though we didn't practice Judaism. The first memory I have of really learning about the Holocaust was after uh, the release of Schindler's List. Like many people of my generation, this is kind of the first exposure. But in particular, one of the leading Holocaust educators in Winnipeg at that time, in the early to mid-90s, was a survivor named Philip Weiss. And Philip Weiss was very, very proactive in promoting Holocaust education. And one of the things that he did after the release of Schindler's List is he sponsored a screening of the film at the movie theater at the, uh, there's a military base in the St. James of Winnipeg, 17 Wing Army Base. They used to have a theater that was open to the public. They would run kind of second run films there. We went there very often for birthday parties in my younger years because it was the price was good and the price of the candy was good as well. But Philip Weiss sponsored a screening of Schindler's List, I would guess probably 94, roughly. So the year after Schindler's List was released, and he paid for the admission for everyone who wanted to attend. So my uncle Murray took my cousin Stephen and myself, and Stephen would become a very big influence in my uh, Holocaust education as well. I'm sure I'll speak with him more in this interview. 
So Uncle Murray, Murray Hyman, took Stephen and I to see this film. And so we watched the film, of course, but then also Philip Weiss shared his testimony at the conclusion of the film. So this was both kind of my exposure to the history of the Holocaust in a more dedicated manner and also hearing a personal story directly from someone who lived through it. So this was probably maybe I was probably maybe grade eight or grade nine at the time. So, you know, went through the rest of high school, started university, was taking film studies, actually. So not not focused on the Holocaust at all at the time, just taking film studies because I was in my early 20s. I liked movies. I was like, hey, you can study movies in university. Cool. But one of the electives that I took at the recommendation of my cousin, Stephen Hyman, was a course in the history department on history of anti-Semitism and the Holocaust taught by Professor Lionel Steinman. And this really kind of ignited my academic interest in the Holocaust, learning about the long history of anti-Semitism that long preceded the Holocaust and the multifaceted nature of anti-Semitism that has occurred over the centuries, religiously based, politically based, socially based, culturally based. It was just so fascinating that Jews have been, they've been blamed as communists, they've been blamed as capitalists, they've been blamed for being too rich, too poor, too insular, too focused on global domination. It's absolutely incredible. And it's, it's very easy to see why many scholars refer to anti-Semitism as the longest hatred. So this really opened my eyes. And as I'm finishing up my film studies degree, this interest in anti-Semitism and the Holocaust and my interest in film began to coalesce at the time. And that was why in my grad school, I started focusing on Holocaust cinema, which eventually led to my PhD on the Holocaust in Canadian film, which eventually would lead me to my job at the Canadian Museum for Human Rights. The job offer of which I received the day of my last paycheck from my scholarship from Carleton. So very, very thankful. And uh, literally, it was my dream job to get a job in the Holocaust gallery at the uh, Human Rights Museum. So. Yeah, and Jeremy, uh, you've uh, obviously had a great impact on not only what is in the Holocaust, but also you oversee three of the museum's permanent galleries as well. So you've got a great depth and breadth of expertise and knowledge. Let me just come back and probe a little bit about you know, the treatment of the Holocaust in Canadian cinema. Explain a little bit about what, what did you discover there? What were some of the things that maybe you didn't know that you would like to share with those people that are listening? For sure. For, so for anyone who's listening who doesn't want to read the 400-page dissertation, that is available online if you go through the Carleton Library. What I found, like nothing had really been written extensively on Canadian Holocaust cinema. And before I started, I didn't really even know there were a lot of Canadian films on the Holocaust. But as I, I found a, a short filmography that professor who teaches at the University of Ottawa, Gary Evans, prepared a significant number of Canadian films that touch on the Holocaust. So I started watching them. I started getting them. Sometimes you had to buy them from eBay or different libraries. They're not widely available. I tell people that I worked on this. Most people are like, what? Holocaust and Canadian film, are there any? Well, there are, but they're not very well known as Canadian cinema generally kind of suffers from a lack of exposure. But as I was watching these, one of the things that kind of jumped out, like I was familiar with kind of European cinema on the Holocaust. So films from like Poland, Czechoslovakia, Germany, these are countries that had a direct experiential connection to the history of the Holocaust. And their films tend to deal with these different national histories. In the case of American cinema, America, the United States had a similar relationship to the Holocaust as Canada, fighting as allies against Nazi Germany but not having that same kind of direct experience of the Holocaust that some of these European countries did. But in the case of the United States, they have this massive classical Hollywood cinema narrative system where the history of the Holocaust and Holocaust stories get kind of translated in universe. Like Hollywood is a universal cinema. It's something that it tries to appeal to everybody. So you don't need a direct experience to understand some of the stories that are told through the Hollywood system. 
so this is something that American cinema has that Canada does not have. We do not have kind of this overarching internationalizing narrative system that Hollywood does. So what I noticed as I was watching these Holocaust films from Canada, what they did is they emphasized in different ways a distance, an experiential distance between Canada and the Holocaust. This manifests in different ways in different films. Some of the films deal specifically with kind of the uh, bureaucratic barriers between Canada and the Holocaust, that Canada's war efforts did not really directly interact with the Holocaust at the time. Other films position after the Holocaust, they position survivors within Canada as kind of socially and emotionally distant and removed from their Canadian surroundings. So kind of positing that experiential barriers between the Holocaust that is kind of like manifest in the survivors and their surroundings. So it's that distance. The, my, the dissertation title is Unbridgeable Barriers, the Holocaust in Canadian Cinema. And it's this unconquered distance that, that the United States and Hollywood is able to conquer through the kind of universalizing narrativization of Hollywood cinema. So, Jeremy, one of the things that was very evident as we were going through the process of uh, building the Canadian Museum for Human Rights and focusing on the work that you've done with the, the Holocaust Gallery was to really look at Canada's role historically of how that Canada has dealt with uh, Jewish refugees. And of course, the issue with the um, MS St. Louis is, is quite well documented and how they were turned away, how those Jewish refugees were turned away from Canada. And I think the one thing that is very interesting, and I don't know if it showed in some of the cinematography that you saw, over time about how Canada evolved as a place that was basically not open to bringing Jewish refugees or immigrants into Canada to really now being one of the strongest allies, I think, that Israel has. And I'm speaking now more politically than, than any. But did you see that evolution in some of the cinema that you were looking at at that time? More the uh, kind of critical looks toward Canada's kind of restrictive immigration policies or the or kind of the anti-Semitism or like historically, like at the time of the Second World War, looking at some of those bureaucratic barriers that were informed by both political and social anti-Semitism. Of course, the political and the social feed into each other, right? But there was like another aspect that a number of the films dealt with, with uh, a lack of interest. During the Holocaust and immediately thereafter, Canada's borders were largely shut to many um, quote-unquote preferred European immigrants. But in the years after the war, certainly those doors started slowly to open, and a lot of uh, Jewish Holocaust survivors ended up making Canada their home. But some of the films, what they were looking at was a, a reluctance on the part of Canada to hear about these stories, or a sense that the Holocaust didn't really have anything to do with Canada, that survivors should get over what happened. And actually, one of the filmmakers that I wrote about in my dissertation is a Holocaust survivor who's based in Toronto named Jack Cooper. And when I interviewed him for the film... One of the works that he produced in 1960, so very, very early, only shortly thereafter, The Diary of Anne Frank, the Hollywood version by George Stevens, was released in 1959. So 1960, CBC, where Jack Cooper was working at the time, he got a job at CBC, and they produced a televised version of a play that he wrote called Sun in My Eyes, which is about part of his family's experiences during the Holocaust. And he said at the time that he was writing this, there was very, very little interest in exploring this topic. And the lack of interest kind of stemmed from, A, it's over. Why are we still talking about this? And B, oh, this has nothing to do with Canada. And so this is another example of those kind of like barriers that I was talking about in terms of the Holocaust experience and the Canadian kind of uh, social political context. 
these films are looking kind of critically at Canada's initial reluctance to first open the gates for those trying to flee Nazi Germany. And second, kind of this lack of interest at the time in hearing these stories. And this is, this has certainly changed, you know, when we're talking about, you know, Jack Cooper hearing this in the 1960s and as the Holocaust became more well known and people became more interested in it as, you know, uh, books and films about the Holocaust, new scholarship has been produced. But most of the films are kind of looking more at what we can learn by uh, kind of our political refusal to open the gates to those who were trying to flee. And I think we're always trying to learn more and more and more more information comes out about issues around the Holocaust, Jeremy. One of the things I just wanted to sort of explore with you was how you felt the opportunity with your expertise coming to a museum, that museum being the Canadian Museum for Human Rights, and having this focus on the Holocaust from a museological kind of standpoint. As you said, it was your dream job, and uh, I think it's aptly put because I you know, have to say that the amount of positive comments that come from that gallery, as challenging, as difficult, as emotionally wrenching as it is, it seems to have really settled in a way that people have a, an opportunity to learn, to be surprised for some who didn't know some of the history. Maybe tell us a little bit about how you felt your experience of what you were hoping to see. And I know there was a team involved, but uh, under your leadership, how you feel that that gallery has sat within the journey of the Canadian Museum for Human Rights? Yeah, absolutely. The Holocaust Gallery had a very, very interesting developmental uh, process. It was always kind of understood that there was going to be a Holocaust gallery in the Canadian Museum for Human Rights. Right from the, it, it was never intended to be a Holocaust museum with human rights at the periphery. It was always intended to be a human rights museum, but there was always a sense that it was important to look at the history of the Holocaust as a kind of a key and very uh, widely used educational case study of genocide. So as we were developing the content, the question was never should there be a gallery on the Holocaust in the Canadian Museum for Human Rights, but what is the best way? to do a Holocaust gallery within a museological context in general, but then also a Canadian human rights museological context specifically, right? One of the elements in the gallery that I think, as you say, has taken people by surprise is a, a film. It's kind of centered in the gallery. There's a large theater that has walls of, uh, that evoke broken glass, speaking to the night of broken glass, Kristallnacht, the uh, organized anti-Jewish pogrom in 1938. And this film looks at the history of anti-Semitism in Canada in the 1930s and 1940s as a complement to the historical information in the rest of the gallery that looks, of course, at anti-Semitism in Nazi Germany and uh, Nazi Europe more generally. And kind of disabusing a simplistic understanding of Canada's relationship to the Holocaust. A lot of people might come in thinking, oh, Canada and the Holocaust, Canada fought on the side of the Allies to defeat Nazi Germany. You know, we went to Europe and we rescued the Jews of Europe. Isn't this wonderful? Canada's efforts in defeating Nazi Germany were critically important. But at the same time, that doesn't undo the fact that anti-Semitism and anti-Jewish sentiment in Canada was very prevalent at the time, and it informed the political response to the Jews trying to flee Nazi Germany. So when the gallery first opened, and I had the chance to speak to some visitors and guests and groups that were going through the gallery, the Holocaust is not a horror story that happened long ago and far away. There are connections to Canada at the time and to Canada and the present and the lingering legacy of anti-Semitism that continues to persist to today. This is not 
just something that we should look at and be like, oh, wasn't that awful? Look how awful those were. There's no human rights education in wagging your finger at past historical actors, right? To put yourself in a position of moral vanity. So what we're trying to do in that gallery is to get visitors to introspectively reflect on their own biases, their own prejudices, because we all have them, because we're human. And to kind of think critically about that, to think critically about Canada's role in relation to the Holocaust and also Canada's role in the international community more generally. If any listeners are interested in a kind of a broader discussion about the Holocaust gallery and kind of the discussions that went into it and how this kind of human rights Canadian approach was manifest throughout the exhibit, myself and my predecessor, Clint Curl, did write a journal article. It's free. People don't have to register uh, to get it. But it goes into a lot of detail as to some of those discussions that informed how the Holocaust gallery was developed, including those moments of missteps where we had to like hit the pause button, take a few steps back and recalibrate through research and engagement with the community. Yeah, I think it goes without saying that we were under a fairly significant microscope as we were having these conversations, Jeremy. And I come back to the notion that there has been a tremendous acceptance, I think, of how the Canadian Museum for Human Rights positioned the Holocaust Gallery in the journey, as we always talked about it, inside that museum as a kind of that pivotal moment where we started to look at international issues and Canada's role. I remember, Jeremy, one of the things of when we were talking about even developing some of the smaller, subtle things that happened in uh, with respect to museums is Ralph Applebaum, who was the designer and helping to sort of create and work with the narrative about what that looked like. He made a comment once about where you had to pull out a drawer because there was something concealed inside a drawer and you had to pull it out towards you. He was very adamant that these handles on the drawer should not be smooth. They should have something that just is a little bit of a reminder of all of the pain that people went through. They're not there to hurt you, but it was a very subtle reminder to just say that just you're not opening a drawer, simply you're opening up maybe a memory. You're opening up something that is very meaningful to somebody. So, you know, I think it's been really, really tremendous. And I guess the one question I would ask, Jeremy, as we start to look at some of the things that you were involved in, what are some of the new elements that you might be looking at with respect to to that gallery or any other galleries that you're involved in with the Canadian Museum for Human Rights? Yeah, for sure. So what, one of the uh, pieces that has kind of had a very profound impact on me recently that I've been working on, I find artifacts are a really, really powerful way of bringing the uh, tangibility of history to our visitors and those who I have the opportunity to speak to. And they can kind of lend a visual lens through which to think about these very, very complex histories that can sometimes feel kind of abstract when you think about it, right? When you think about the 6 million, right? That titanic scale of the Holocaust, as important as that massive scale is to know and to teach about, it can sometimes hide that behind those 6 million are 6 million individuals who had their own histories, who had their own dreams, had their own families, had their own lives. And sometimes artifacts are a way to kind of bring out some of those aspects that the 6 million can sometimes hide. To give one example of a piece that I've been working on recently, a few years ago, we brought into our collection, it's a a wallet, navy blue wallet, leather. But this wallet was made from pages of a Torah scroll that was looted during the Holocaust in Poland in the 1940s. So when you look at this wallet, 
first glance, it looks like a wallet. You look at it a bit closer, you can see the Hebrew lettering on it, right? We know that the Holocaust was a genocidal attempt to erase the Jewish people. Conceptually, we know this, right? It was the genocide that helped Raphael Lemkin, the Polish Jewish lawyer who coined the term genocide. It helped him give a name to this idea of group destruction that he was interested in before the Holocaust, but it was the Nazi aggression against Jews and the Nazi occupation of Poland that helped him kind of put a name to this previously unnamed crime, right? Right. He, he's kind of the father of the definition of genocide. Exactly. And kind of a very important contributor to the Genocide Convention of the United Nations. So we know this attempt to cultural erasure is that what the Holocaust is. But when you look at this wallet and you see the sacred writing on this wallet and the sacred material that has been glossed over and re-signified into this crude and profane being the opposite of sacred object of commerce, you see a visual manifestation of this cultural erasure that is not theoretical, it's literal. You see it because that which this was, a Torah scroll that was used by a congregation in Eastern Europe, has been profaned. So we have this object um, in our collection. And one of the things that, looking at this, that I, I wanted to do, if this object is a manifestation of cultural erasure, what can we do with it that's a human rights response to this? Not just put it up and say what this is, but there seems to be something more that we could do. So I started engaging with some members of the Jewish community including my cousin, Stephen Hyman, and some rabbis that we had worked with previously. And I thought, wouldn't it be powerful if we could figure out which sections of the Torah this is from, right? So at the very least, we are not just accepting this as a wallet that was made from a Torah. What was this? When it was sacred, and there is still sacred qualities that are retained, this is something that some of the community members that we worked with, just because it's now a wallet doesn't mean that there's not a sacred quality to this object as well. But I thought it would be great if we could figure out what these texts were. So working with some local rabbis, including Rabbi Yosef Benarosh, Orthodox rabbi from Winnipeg, we were able to figure out that most of the wallet was made from the Book of Numbers, and kind of a billfold that is sewn onto it is from the Book of Exodus. Now, being able to rearticulate what these pages of the Torah were from initially felt like a means of undoing that attempted cultural erasure. If the, if the creation of the wallet attempted to undo the Jewish meaning of the Torah as part of the Holocaust attempt to erase the Jewish people, rearticulating that which this was seemed very important. But even more important than figuring out what books of the Torah this wallet was made from was the process of engaging with the Jewish community. Because it is with the Jewish community of my cousin Stephen Hyman, Rabbi Alan Green from Sherazedek, Rabbi Yosef Benarosh, they were viewing this as a Torah, right? They were treating this, it was not a Torah that could be used for ritual purposes anymore, of course, but it was still something that had its sacred quality retained. And this treating of this object with this reverence was a, a refutation of that with the effort of erasure that the wallet manifested in the creation. So if the wallet manifested an attempted erasure, the treatment and the love with which this wallet was treated by the Jewish community is a refutation of that genocidal attempt. And it's also a declaration that the Jewish, not only the Jewish quality of the text on the wallet is still there by knowing what the text was, but the treatment of it by the Jewish people shows the living reality of Judaism that continues to this day, in spite of what the Nazis attempted to erase. So that is where that powerful aspect to the wallet and the treatment of it by our Jewish partners really, really becomes powerful and becomes what I think is a human rights approach to a Holocaust artifact. Yeah, very well said, Jeremy. So let me just explore a couple of things. 
How old would you say, or do you know how old the wallet is? Well, the uh, donor of the wallet said that his mother acquired it from a marketplace in Krakow, and I think it was 1941 or 1942. And this would have been around the time that the Nazis were indeed, I should stress that this is not a unique case. The Nazis did loot Jewish homes and Jewish places of worship and kind of transform aspect things like the tor- like Torah or prayer books into other commodities. So this is, I should clarify that this is not a unique circumstance, but it would have been around those early years after the occupation of Poland in the early 1940s. And Poland, of course, had a very, very vibrant and large Jewish population. So there were, after the Nazi occupation, there were a lot of synagogues and large Jewish population centers where materials like this would have been very rampant. So I would guess it would have been produced probably shortly before it was acquired in the early 1940s. And was your sense, Jeremy, as you are looking at this whole history and all the people that you've been involved in, was the sense that when the original person who purchased this wallet, did they realize what it was or did that happen over time? How is it that it was discovered that this you know, piece of a wallet, I'm buying a wallet, I happen to buy a wallet at a market, and all of a sudden somebody looks at it and says, this is not really a wallet. Myself and Stephen Hyman are, are actually in the process of writing an article that explores all of these questions that we'll, we're hoping will be published in a collection by the, Montre- or the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum in the not-too-distant future. In short, the individual who purchased the wallet, as far as we know, from the donor, it was his mother, and she did not know what the wallet was when she acquired it. And the donor himself was quite young at the time, but he recalls learning from his mother eventually that this was not just a wallet. This was a wallet that was made up of Jewish holy books. And as he got older, it became more and more important for the family to uh, protect and preserve this wallet. It wasn't being used as a wallet once it became clear what it was. And there's there kind of a long history of where the wallet was, where they were going to send it to, how, how they were going to preserve it. But the importance of the wallet was very, very uh, clear to the donor and his family. Like the wallet was formally kind of donated to the museum. I think it was in 2016, if I'm not mistaken. And then I did an oral history interview with the donor in 2017, where he provided some background, some more background to the wallet. But I think he first approached some of the early founders of the museum, maybe even Israel Asper himself, in maybe the very, very late 90s or very early 2000s about this piece. So well before we would have been in the position to bring anything into a collection because a collection didn't exist yet. But the donor said, like, as the Canadian Museum for Human Rights was being developed, he kind of knew that this could be a very important home for this piece. So we were very, very pleased when he kind of restarted that conversation. And then we were able to bring it in and have a oral history with the donor as well. And that we're able to share the story in this publication from the U.S. Holocaust Museum that will hopefully be coming shortly. That's fantastic. And Jeremy, I don't know if you are in a position and maybe there's some questions I may ask that you're saying, look, we're still working on or we would like to maybe hold off until this article gets published more publicly. But I'm interested in how you look at an object that is this important in terms of the opportunity to be a part of bringing another element of what the Holocaust means today in Canada as an item that might be, you know, a museological item, an item or an artifact that might appear in a museum versus a community that wants to be maybe holding on to that as a community piece versus something that becomes more of a public piece. Mm, Yeah. 
those were certainly some of the, uh, I don't know if we ever discussed it specifically with our uh, partners in the Jewish community, including religious leaders, but it was something that was always kind of maybe percolating beneath the surface. I guess maybe this is a testament to the fact that the Holocaust Gallery has been very well received in general, maybe not universally, but well received in general by the Jewish community. They've been very, very supportive of the fact that the Canadian Museum for Human Rights has a different mandate than a Holocaust Museum specifically. And so the Holocaust Gallery, it makes sense that it's approached in a somewhat different way than a Holocaust Museum specifically. But the, the general sense with the community members that we worked with, they were very, very pleased that A, the wallet was going to be in an institution that has the ability to preserve it in kind of a professional and best practices capacity, but then also that the story could be brought out more generally. Now, in an ideal world, we have had the wallet on display now, and we try to incorporate as much detail as we can, but in artifact labels, it's very, you can only incorporate so many details. In an ideal world, we wouldn't have put it on display until we had this article out. We might've been able to have a program, but unfortunately the pandemic has changed things some loans that we were anticipating from external institutions were not able to happen because of the pandemic. So we had a space where we, without the wallet, we could you bring the wallet out to fill a space. So, you know, we're not living in ideal times, but I'm hoping that as things will open back up and they eventually come start getting back to normal, we will be able to do some more public programming and more educational uh, opportunities about, about this piece, but other pieces as well, of course. And, you know, certainly, hopefully, Whenever we do a public program, we try to connect the past and the present in a certain way, not, not to, you have to be careful when you connect the past and present that you don't just use the past as a kind of a careless launching off point to talk about something in the present, right? You want to do justice to both, right? But certainly the anti-Semitism and anti-Jewish sentiment and kind of more generally a sense of othering, positioning the other as inferior and dangerous that the wallet kind of evokes certainly has connections to human rights issues um, at the present. So again, we're looking forward to being able to have opportunities to tell those stories more generally. And in the meantime, I'm hoping that for those who are interested in a bit of a deeper dive, there'll be this uh, publication that will come out. It's about difficult material histories generally. That's what the book is about, not just about the Holocaust, but that's where the collection will be. Yeah, very interesting, fascinating. And, and of course, as we're talking about January 27th being the International Day of Commemoration in memory of the victims of the Holocaust. You know, this is another example of some of the things and the great work that you at the Canadian Museum for Human Rights are doing, Jeremy. We talked a little bit about, because I saw on your website, there's a Yiddish poem. What if you want to talk a little bit about the history of what that is all about? And people want to have a look and they can see this. They can go on the CMHR Canadian Museum for Human Rights website. But uh, talk a little bit about the history and how that found itself in where it is. Yeah, so this is another object that has been very, very profound to work with. It's a poem that was written in Yiddish uh, in January 1943 by an individual named Herschel Zinoberg, Harry Zinoberg. And he wrote this poem in the midst of the Holocaust while he was living through it. And when he wrote this poem, Herschel ended up surviving the Holocaust. And this poem ended up being, like like many artifacts from history, ended up being an attic for de- in an attic for decades. And it was only discovered well after Herschel and his, Herschel's brother, who actually had the poem in his possession, passed away. And it was discovered many years later by his uh, children. And it was Herschel's son who ended up donating the poem to the museum. But the poem, the Yiddish poem written January 1943 is very, very interesting because it evokes, as I said, Herschel survived the Holocaust. But when you read the poem, it was presented with a translation that was already done by two local Yiddishists into English. 
to Winnipeg-based Yiddishists, I should specify. There's a very much a sense that Herschel did not think he was going to survive when he wrote this poem. And there's a sense of, the, the poem has a sense of hope, hopelessness and despair and the, the brutal conditions under which he was writing this. And we don't know 100%, like many historical artifacts, you don't know 100%. Some of it is deduction, but we believe he probably wrote this when he was in the Radom ghetto, Radom, R-A-D-O-M in Poland. And he was witnessing the brutal conditions of the ghetto. And the poem also includes, in addition to this despair, a sense of hope that the Jewish people, the Jewish culture, he calls it the Yiddish gate, will continue in some capacity in this world or the next. So there's a sense of hopelessness and despair, but an also sense of desperate hope as well. And one of the uh, interesting things that you kind of start delving into when you have a piece like this, I started doing some more research into the time period of the Radom ghetto. And from again, this is deduction, and this is explored a little bit in that web story that visitors can find on our website. I think that at the date of the poem that he wrote this, I believe there was a deportation happening in the Radom ghetto of victims who were eventually sent to a death camp. Now, I don't believe, based on his age at the time, he would have been a young man. And I think the deportation at that time would have been older people, possibly his parents. So I, th- I think there's a strong possibility that he might have written this poem as a deportation was occurring from the ghetto into the camp. And this is where you get a sense of like kind of that threat. He talks about boots moving in the snow and the sense of danger. So I think as he's writing this, it's not obviously in a ghetto, it's not abstract danger, but I think it's very literal that of things that he's witnessing and feeling at that time. And I think that that poem and the fact that it's in Yiddish, this is a language that was almost entirely lost because it was a language that brought, that was spoken by a lot of Jewish communities and Jewish small towns in Eastern Europe. It was a language that kind of connected Jews of many different nationalities because it was a language that they shared. Even if they didn't share the na- their nationalities, they shared the sense of language. So the fact that it's written in Yiddish is also kind of a means, uh, and the fact that it survived and Herschel survived, and yet the Yiddish language is still, certainly there's not many, many speakers of the Yiddish language, but it's something that does survive. There's a sense of hope that this poem evokes, even as it kind of speaks to the history of the Holocaust and the danger that Hirsch Seinoberg would have felt at the time that he was writing it. And very, very powerful as well for the, uh, his son. And when we put the poem on display, we welcomed his son and his family, and they came and got to see this poem that had been folded up and held in, in a, not in a disrespectful way. This is just what happens with people's material stuff over years. And it was discovered, and now it's brought out and being used for educational purposes. So, Jeremy, one of the things that has uh, I learned in my time at the Canadian Museum for Human Rights and, and learning from people like you and others, you mentioned uh, Clint Curl. You know, when I come back to what this podcast is really kind of making, I guess, you know, the International Day of Commemoration and Memory of the Victims of the Holocaust was or Holocaust Remembrance Day to really talk about the memory of the victims. And I think that one of the things that I learned, even in the time I was fortunate enough to go to Yad Vashem, is how the Jewish people have really taken this horrific event, this genocide, and not concentrated so much on the numbers, although the numbers are are clearly staggering at 6 million and maybe more, but that there is the ability to put a name to a person a place where they were born so that they become, their memory is about a person, not a number. And I think the examples that you're talking about with the wallet and the uh, the poem, the Yiddish poem, 
it's somebody wrote it, somebody made it, somebody had it, you know, just that, that very personal attachment. And I, I would just uh, love your sort of thoughts on the importance of how that is in terms of how you're able to bring visitors in to let them see the importance of how the, the Holocaust has been, I think, presented in a way that it makes it very personal. It's not about numbers. It's about human beings, about live loss, about victims. Yeah, absolutely. Just before getting to the museum, one of the very, very powerful uh, commemorative uh, approaches, I don't know if other Jewish communities do it across Canada. I imagine they probably do, but one of them is called Unto Every Person There Is a Name in Normal Times. It's held every year at the uh, Manitoba legislature. And then different people from the community read the names of um, individuals who have family that have come to Winnipeg. And it, and it lasts for several hours. And this is just people whose descendants are in Winnipeg. And you, you read these names, these people of blessed memory. So very much there is that sense of the importance of remembering the individual, as important as it is to remember the scale. I don't get me wrong. The importance of the scale is very important as well, but it's important that that scale does not lose the individual aspects to it. And you had mentioned Ralph Applebaum, the fantastic designer of um, the inaugural exhibitions, including the Holocaust Gallery at the Canadian Museum for Human Rights. And it's a subtle strategy that I don't know if people get until you hear it. And then when you hear it, you're like, oh yeah. So in like to get visitors drawn in, in a museum, individual stories, you really can't beat it because that's where you get that individual impact. You know, you can hear about, oh, anti-Jewish persecution, anti-Jewish laws. But when you hear about someone who's, you know, an individual who lost his job or a, someone who was not able to play at her tennis club anymore or sit on the bench that you should sit on with a friend's that's where you kind of see the, ten, the kind of uh, individual impacts of this. But one of the things that Ralph Applebaum and his team did is that they, the walls of the Holocaust Gallery are kind of layered, like both in terms of physical, like you have panels that are physically at one level, you have another panel that's slightly set back from it, and then also visually. So you have images that are kind of in the foreground, images that are in the background. Some are kind of lighter in color, some are darker. So you bring forward these individual stories, but that layered approach shows that there are more. This is not a story that stands for everything else because every story is unique. But this is an individual story that brings you into that history, brings you into an individual aspect, but the layering shows that there are so many more stories like this. And I think that's a very, very powerful way of kind of bringing together that, balancing that kind of the mass and the individuality. And what museums can do as terms of drawing visitors in through a story, but not implying that this story is the only one or necessarily the most important one. It's a signifier of these other stories, these countless other stories that exist kind of alongside and behind it. Yeah, for sure. No, thanks. Thanks, Jeremy, for that. Jeremy, one of the things I just wanted to ask, and I know that this is maybe not necessarily part of your expertise, but just, you know, if there's anything that you might illuminate from what you have seen and your studies with the genocide and the Holocaust and how that has all come forward and some of the elements around that, if anything you can illuminate about the residential school system in Canada. Yeah, for sure. So the Holocaust and the residential school system in Canada, these are obviously distinct historical events. Like every historical event has its own context and its own uh, unique characteristics. But there are, there's a saying, history doesn't repeat, but sometimes it rhymes. And there are certainly rhythmic and uh, practical connections between the experiences of Indigenous peoples in Canada and the Holocaust. Of course, this is not to conflate the two, but there are certainly similarities. And the, the, certainly when you look through the lens of genocide as a, an attempt of, to destroy a group as a group, 
when you look at the work of Raphael Lemkin, who kind of coined the term genocide, for him, genocide was, was not to be conflated with immediate mass killing. So when you think about kind of some of the iconic aspects of the Holocaust, the gas chambers, the killing fields of Eastern Europe by the mobile killing squads, things like this can be a component of genocide, but the attempt at group eradication is broader than that, right? So the attempt, what he, Lemkin describes it as the replacement of the national pattern. He calls it national pattern of the oppressed group by that of the oppressor. So when you think about this, the uh, attempted erasure impose, imposed forcibly by colonial measures is intimately bound with the concept of genocide. They can't really be separated from each other. And for Lemkin, he was interested in the idea of group destruction before the Holocaust. The Holocaust helped him give a name to this concept, but he continued working on group destruction after, after this. And at the time of his death in 1959, he was working on a broad history of genocide internationally. And in his papers, there are a lot of materials on instances of genocide and colonization, uh, including Spanish colonization of the Americas, the British colonization of Tasmania, the early 20th century German colonization of Namibia, and the uh, genocide of the Herero and Nama peoples. So Lemkin, as far as I know, Lemkin didn't write about the Canadian case specifically. I don't think it's that crazy to think that he, if he, if he hadn't died in the middle of this project, he may have. And even if he wouldn't have, his discussion about colonial genocide and colonial measures of group erasure, such as killing and creating conditions intended to cause death, or that would be reasonably assumed to cause death, Removal of children from their families, which is a clear case in the Indian residential school system in Canada. Other aspects basically intended to prevent the future of the group as a group. These are clear commonalities that colonial genocides, including that in Canada, hold in common with uh, genocides such as the Holocaust. So it's not to say that every genocide occurs in the exact same way with the exact same steps, but the attempted group erasure and the attempted group eradication is something that I think there is a commonality that the Holocaust can illuminate in thinking about the experiences of Indigenous peoples in Canada and vice versa. It's an, a whole other conversation to have, uh, Jeremy. Again, I know where your level of expertise is and the way that you were able to illuminate your thoughts on this. Uh, very, very much appreciate your time. So let me just uh, throw the last one to you, Jeremy. I love how you came at this and how you got interested in studying the Holocaust as a young person with Schindler's List. I mean, there is always a pivot. There's something that happens. For those visitors that come through the Canadian Museum for Human Rights and go through the Holocaust gallery specifically, what would you want them to leave thinking as they're leaving that and looking at going into the next gallery, which talks about the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, et cetera? But what would you hope that their takeaway would be from their experience in that gallery? I think I would summarize it in kind of two things that I hope they take away. One is the need for vigilance. So even when human rights are very, very powerful, they're also very, very vulnerable. It's very easy for human rights to be stripped. And it's important to be vigilant when individuals are being dehumanized because of who they are, because of the groups that they belong to. So you look at the case of the Holocaust Gallery, it starts within the Weimar Republic after the First World War. In general, a fragile democracy, but a democracy nonetheless with a constitution that on paper had rights enshrined. But if rights are not lived and believed in a society, rights on paper don't really mean too much, right? If they can be undone. 
So we want visitors to think about the need to be vigilant in order to protect human rights, even when we think we are in a situation where we don't have too much worry about uh, human rights abuses. So vigilance. The second I want visitors to think about is the importance of individual agency and action. Visitors, of course, can go through the gallery in any order that they want. They can go through the museum in any order that they want. But if they go through the gallery in terms of how uh, it's kind of laid out and designed as part of a museum journey, the last exhibit that they see is a large monumental artifact case. The backdrop of the artifact case is some aerial shots of Auschwitz, the original camp at Auschwitz, and then Auschwitz-Birkenau, which is sort of the iconic camp with a large tower, lots of barracks, crematoria. So these aerial shots are intended to signify the massive and industrial scale of the Holocaust. It almost beggars the imagination, right? It was so big, and it was able to be big because it was industrialized. But juxtaposed with these aerial shots are some objects that speak to some of the smaller decisions that were needed in order for the Holocaust to be perpetrated on that scale. So as an example, transport lists for a group of uh, Jews who had to be transported through a transit camp in Drancy, France, who ultimately ended up in Auschwitz. Order forms for the Zyklon B canisters that would be used to poison Jews and other groups in the gas chambers. Blueprints to design the crematoria. So these are actions that were needed in order for the genocide to be perpetrated. So it's not only... The example that I give, um, I don't, I'm sure you've seen Schindler's List, uh, Stuart, and probably many of your listeners have as well. But you have that scene where uh, Ray Fine's character, Emin Girth, is on his balcony and he's just wantonly shooting Jews at the camp, just picking them off with a rifle. The Jews, they have, they have nowhere to hide. Those who are not shot are just continuing to cower and work as best they can. And it is very easy. You, I love Schindler's List. I think it's a fabulous film. It got me into my entire, it shaped my life. But it's very easy for me to to not identify with Eamon Girth at that moment, right? Like there's no introspection. And like, I would never find my, I can't even imagine finding myself in a situation where doing that. So that's where you get that sense of moral vanity. Like I would never do that. But when you start thinking about some of the smaller actions, I mean, I don't know who drew, who drafted the blueprints for the crematory at Burke. Now I don't know who typed up the order form for the Zyklon B canister. But when you start thinking about how your day-to-day actions and how your actions might interact with the individual actions of other people, how those might interact and contribute to human rights in either a positive or negative way. And I think that's what I want visitors to think about is how their actions matter. So it's not just about looking back and viewing not only the Holocaust, but other human rights, historical uh, abuses that are explored throughout the Canadian Museum for Human Rights. It's not just looking back to learn about what happened, but it's to reflect on the why and how some of those whys reflect on the individual choices and actions that you might make in the present. Not all of them will be as consequential, of course, as drafting a transport list to Drancy or Auschwitz. You might be blessed to never have to make those choices or realize that you're not to realize that you're making those choices of such horrific scale. But individual actions matter. And when we start to think about how our actions can contribute to human rights, I think that's where you can get a real sense of what you the power that you have as an individual and within your sphere of influence. Well, on that note, Jeremy, I would say that I'm very thankful that you would take this time to have this conversation with me today. And I think that on the broader scale, that the Canadian Museum for Human Rights is thankful that your expertise and others have played a significant role in talking about the education, the advocacy for human rights through the lens of the horror of the, what took place in the Holocaust. So thank you so much for today. I really appreciate it. And I do look forward to the next opportunity when you and I have a chance to have a conversation. 
It was my pleasure, Stuart. And thank you very much for inviting me. And I just want to take this opportunity also to thank you for your leadership role in navigating the museum through its opening and, and through those very, very challenging years before. It was very much a pleasure to work under your leadership. And I'm just glad to have this opportunity to reconnect now. Thank you so much, Jeremy. Really appreciate it. You take care. Humans on Rights is recorded and hosted by Stuart Murray. Social media marketing by the creative team at Full Current in Winnipeg. Thanks also to Trixie Mae Bituin. Music by Doug Edmond. For more, go to humanrightshub.ca. Produced and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company. What happens when we play outside? We become healthier, both mentally and physically. We become more creative and more focused. We connect with nature, each other, and ourselves. Let's Take This Outside, a new podcast hosted by me, Marianne Iveson, an aspiring outdoor athlete and nature lover. I speak to athletes, outdoor professionals, and scientists about their connection to nature, how it affects their performance and everyday life. Let's Take This Outside, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and at ivisonvoice.com slash podcast.